My name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, if you're new with us, we do love conversation. We believe that conversation uh, is the vehicle to stir up consideration of the greatest truths in this world. Uh, why am I here? Is there a God? What is he like? Who is he? Is Jesus his son? All sorts of great things. So thank you for participating in the conversation. Uh, no matter where you're at in your walk, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're coming to consider with us. Uh, we call ourselves the Considering Community. Uh, so there's no prerequisite to, to where you're at in your knowledge and understanding of God or his gospel of grace. Uh, we really want to celebrate that you're here entering into the process, entering into the process of finding out um, who you are and who God is. So glad that you're here, glad that you're here. Um, did I say it already? My name's Dave? <laughs> okay, my name is Dave. Every day, every day. So uh, I don't know what your favorite New Year's Eve songs are, uh, but one of my favorite songs, uh, this could uh, age me, date me a little bit, is uh, a song by a guy named Hathaway called What is Love? What is Love? Do you know the song? Made famous by, what's that? Baby, don't hurt me. Made famous by uh, Will Ferrell in the movie Night of the Roxbury. And I love this song. And actually, uh, we're going to be talking about this very question, what is love? And so I just want to read a few of the lyrics from this great song because it actually is a great summary of my sermon today. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I don't know why you're not fair. I give you my love, but you don't care. Oh, I don't know. What can I do? What else can I say? It's up to you. I know we are one, just me and you. I can't go on. What is love? And so it goes. And so it goes. And in fact, this song basically sums up the message of the prophet Hosea, who we'll be looking at today. Uh, it basically sums it up. So to save 45 minutes, let you get on with 2019, I'm just going to send you home now with some homework, listen to this song 10 times, and then watch Night at the Roxbury, and you pretty much have the message of Hosea. No, I'm serious. Let's go. Let's go. No. Okay. You guys know me too well. Okay. <laughs> Will Ferrell is the personification of Israel that we'll see in the book of Hosea. So... <laughs> You should go watch it. It's quite interesting. It is amazing how this story plays itself out again and again in so many ways, including ridiculous comedies. Hosea answers this question for us, what is love? And he's going to answer it by saying, God shows us what love is. And in fact, from Scripture, we know that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 says as much. The whole verse says this, throw that up there, Whitney. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And Jesus himself will teach his disciples just before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. He said this, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how the world will know you are my disciples, John 13. So I ask again, what is this kind of love that Jesus speaks of? What is this kind of love that God himself is? I was once having a deep conversation with one of my really close friends, um, I love, I love, I really do. I care deeply for this friend. He was in my wedding party when I got married. I've known him for most of my life. I care deeply about him. And so I asked him this question one time. We're having a great conversation. I said, well, what is love? How, how would you describe love? What is it? What, what is it in itself? And he thought about it for a moment, and he very confidently proclaimed to me, he said, Dave, love is economic exchange. You have something I need, I have something you need, and as long as we're both happy trading partners, it means we're in love. 
You might hear that and you might think, oh, that's such a cold, cold description. But if we're honest with ourselves and the way that we actually express love, we might not have the brutal honesty or courage like my friend did to say it out loud, but don't we love like this? Don't we often treat love like economic exchange? Yeah, maybe with our kids we don't treat them like trading partners. Maybe. But Jesus was talking about not just your kids or not even your spouse or your best friend or your sibling. He's talking about church friends. Non-biological friends and acquaintances. When is the last time you loved somebody who you're not biologically related to like Jesus loves. Not like economic trading partners. When I look through the long list of people who have come to Sedaris and wanted to be connected, they filled out a connect card and and they've showed signs, they've come several times, And then I look at the list of people who have done that, and then I realize how many of them I don't know, meaning they never actually got connected because I I, I work really hard to get to know people who, who are part of this community. And I look at the list of names and I realize, oh no. And my heart breaks because I realize maybe we failed to love them like Jesus commanded us to love. So let's make a 2019 resolution as a community that we will try to figure out what love is and love one another in that way. That every person that calls Sedaris home, that every new face that walks in this door, that every new person that comes into one of our fellowship groups, that we will love them like God loves us. No excuses. No excuses. Don't you say it again? No excuses. Happy New Year. (laughs) That was intense. Happy New Year. So what is love like God loves? Insert Hosea. Let's try to figure it out by looking at the prophet Hosea. It's in your Old Testament. Grab your Bible. If you didn't bring your own Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows. Just ask somebody. I've just told them they have to love you like Jesus loves. So just ask them, hey, can you pass one down? They've got to now. I'm watching them. You got to get it. Open it up. We're going to be flipping through. There's 14 chapters in Hosea, and we're going to try to look at all of them in part. Okay, so we're going to be flipping back and forth. So it would be really helpful to have one of these uh, Bibles. We teach from the Bible here at Sedaris. If you're new with us, uh, we believe that truth starts with the Word of God. So we start here, and then we try to unpack it and figure out what does that mean for us today. So we're starting a new series in the new year uh, in the Minor Prophets, and we're going uh, in the Minor Prophets. There's 12 Minor Prophets. Um, the Hebrew Bible calls them the 12. They're minor, not because they're unimportant. They're minor just because they're shorter. Everything that they have to say is extremely major, but they're minor because they're the shorter books of uh, uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. So we're going to do one per week, so 12 weeks, one per week, uh, each week a new prophet, and we'd love for you to read along with us. So next week we'll be in Joel, so you can read Joel during the week on your own. We'd love for you to participate, be asking questions, what does this mean? Um, just, be, just be in the Word of God so that when we come and unpack it, it might be familiar to you and you might actually get more out of our Sunday teaching time, okay? So if you've got one of these side Bibles, I think the page is 487. If you've got one of the Bibles that's on the end of the row, page 487 is going to be the book of the prophet Hosea, okay? Now, as you're, as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background to understanding Uh, the prophets and and what the prophets did and why we have a record of what they said and did here in our Bible some 3,000 years later, okay? So here's what's going on. God's people, the people of Israel, they'd come into conflict with themselves. There's 12 tribes uh, in the land of Israel, and um, 
as people have a tendency to do, even God's people, there was warring, and they split, and there was a civil war, and what ended up is there was a north and a south. Sound familiar? We have that in our own country where there was a civil war. Only this civil war didn't end in uh, reuniting, but it actually ended in a permanent fracture in which there was a northern government with a northern king and a southern government with a southern king, okay? And the northern land was called Israel, or as we'll see in the prophet Hosea, he calls it Israel, he calls it Ephraim, and he calls it Samaria because Samaria was the capital city. Now, in the southern kingdom, the capital city is Jerusalem, and it's referred to as Judah because that was the primary tribe, the tribe of Judah, that made up the land of the southern kingdom, okay? So separate kings, separate governments, separate capital cities, um, both part of the larger people of God, but they could not get along, so they split up. Now, Hosea is, prof is a prophet in the land, in the northern kingdom, okay? So he's a prophet to the northern kingdom, and what a prophet was, what we actually see is that prophets were all over the ancient Near East, not just in, the, not just in Israel. A prophet was an office, a position, a job title, and we see it all across um, multiple countries and cultures and people group in this part of the world, okay? So it's not something new to Israel, but what we do see in Israel is that they will say, well, we are the true prophets of the one true God, Yahweh. And the job of prophets was to speak for God. Now, because they're prophets in other countries and there's prophets, many prophets, not, there's not just like one prophet, there's many prophets, groups of prophets within Israel, what you realize, even, even like pastors and priests and theologians today, some actually did represent God and some actually didn't represent God. And oftentimes one of the ways to figure out if they did represent God or didn't represent God is twofold. One, did the things that they prophesied come to pass? And two, did they have a tendency towards groupthink and tickling the ears of the king or the people? And so what you find in Israel is there's many people that, are, that have the job title or position of prophet, but there are, there are few who truly speak for God. And actually, this is all a part of God's plan. So let me just show you that, that God wants there to be prophets and what we have in the 12 prophets are those who are actually speaking for God, and so they've been recorded for us. But I want to show you where in the law of Moses it's, it's told that there would be prophets amongst the people. So uh, we'll put it up on the screen here. You can turn if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is Moses, who is sort of the prophet of prophets. He's the first uh, in this line, and he says, God's going to raise up prophets like myself. And so it says this, starting in verse... 14. The nations um, will dispos uh, typo. <laughs> For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. See what he's saying? There's, there's people who are claiming to be talking to God and hearing from God all over the place and other nations, but they're fortune tellers and diviners. They do things a little bit different. Verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die." And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, uh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. We need not be afraid of him. So here, here's, here, here, do you hear what's going on? 
God will raise up in the land of Israel prophets like Moses who truly speak the words of God, and there will be others who say they are speaking the words of God, and you will know that they are not speaking the words of God because the things that they speak will not come true, and so you do not need to listen to them or follow them. Okay? So, there were two primary things that the prophets were doing. They were foretelling, prophesying the future. That's actually a, a smaller percentage of the things and the words that they spoke. And the other thing they're doing is foretelling, basically telling it how it is. Say, this is what's going on. So those are the two things that the prophets of God were doing. And more often than not, what you'll see is the way it was, or foretelling, telling it the way that it is, uh, it wasn't good. And so the prophets will call out Israel on their sin, on their waywardness from God, on their rebellion against God. They will call them to repent, turn back to God, stop doing the things that they're doing, do something else, or bear the consequences of that. That's often where the, forth, the foretelling comes in. If you don't, this will happen, and those things come true. This is why we have these prophets saved for us. People said they were truly the prophets of God. They saw things as they actually were, and they saw what was coming because of our waywardness. But then you also see in the prophets, and we'll see this all 12 prophets, there's hope for the future. There's hope, even after our rebellion, of something else to come, that our life with God does not end just because of our rebellion. So that you'll see that in all the prophets, and this is what the prophet Hosea was doing, and we'll see it in all 12 prophets as we go along. But then each prophet will also have a unique, a unique characteristic or element to their prophecy which highlights for us a unique part of God's character and God's plan for salvation. And so each week we'll see a lot of the similar themes, and then each week we'll see something very unique. And part of Hosea's uniqueness, and you'll find it right here in the, in the first few verses, Hosea's uniqueness is that his poetic words, his prophetic and poetic words, are so interwoven with his personal life that he actually is living out the words that he's speaking and writing. It's a really unique part of Hosea's story because we'll see that God instructs Hosea to painfully live in the message of love. Okay? So let me show you what I mean. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Hosea's writing to the people of Israel who are, in many ways, doing things the way the rest of the world does it and not the way God wants them to do it. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, southern kingdom, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Whew. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019. <laughs> it's right here. I didn't make these words up. These are the words of the Lord. Now, um, we could have some more up-to-date translations, a wife of adultery, a wife of prostitution, because this is actually what God is asking Hosea to do. He's saying, go take for yourself a wife who has been living the life of prostitution. And you will have children with her, and you'll have children of adultery. And look what he says. Highlight, circle, if you've got your own Bibles, or circle it even if you're using one of our Bibles. For, God is not just telling him to do this for no reason, He's telling him to do this for this reason. For the land, that's the land of Israel, the people of Israel, commits great whoredom, great prostitution, great adultery by forsaking the Lord, their one true God. So this is the whole book of Hosea is about this. Hosea, I want you to be, you be my prophet, and you're going to speak words, forthtelling and foretelling, but I want you to live this life as well by going and attaching yourself to somebody who will not be faithful to you. Verse 3, so he went. Hosea went, and he took Gomer, 
for everything we know, this is a very common, beautiful name of females in Israel at this time. After Hosea, probably not a lot of parents named their kids Gomer. But Gomer was, okay, it's just a funny name. Okay, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So he goes and he does. He goes and he finds this woman who, uh, more than likely, there's multiple interpretations. Was she already living a life of prostitution when he found her, or did she go and live that life after they were married? There's some debate. I tend to take the former. I think she was already living, and as we'll see, she'll continue to fall back into that lifestyle even after they're married. So he goes and he finds her. When you think of the places he has to go to find a woman that's living this kind of life, takes her to be his wife, and she conceives and bears him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel was a, there was a valley here, and, and many unfortunate evil things happened in this valley of Jezreel that the people of Israel would have remembered Jehu massacred the royal family of Israel in this place. And so it's, it's not a place of blessing, it's a place of curse. And so he says, name your son Jezreel. Verse 5. Oh, excuse me, second. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So he says, I want you to marry a woman of, of adultery and prostitution. I'm gonna, I want you to name your children. I want your children to become reminders of the prophecy that I'm giving to you. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will show no I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord and their God, and I will not save them by the bow or the sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. But I won't save the northern kingdom. Verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Wow. Hosea, I want you to be both a prophet and I want you to live out the message. And I want you to call your children these things that are true of the people of the kingdom in which you live. This is really intense. This is how far the people of God had strayed from their creator, their maker, and God says, you are not my people. We'll see this again and again and again in the prophets. The story could end right here. And Hosea would be preaching a true message, a deserved message. But then you'll always find the first word of verse 10. Do you see it? Yet. Yet. Even though I'm going to ask you to do all of this and speak to the people that, that I'll have no mercy on them, that they're not my God, that they are like the valley of Jezreel, yet, this is beautiful, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah, southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, northern kingdom, shall be gathered together, reunited, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, one king, one leader. Celebrated him at Christmas, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Redemption. Chapter 1 becomes this beautiful sort of summary highlight of the rest of the book. That God's people have turned from Him. They are like Gomer. They are adulterous. They are living lives of prostitution against their loving husband, who is God. 
And what they deserve is to be forsaken and kicked out of the family and to be shown no mercy and experience hardship and curse and blood. Yet, God takes them back. And they experience blessing and His love anew. It always ends with hope because of grace. And we see it again and again in Hosea and in the prophets. So if we were to read through chapter 2, we'd see that that chapter 2 is primarily about this relationship between Israel as husband and, and, uh, sorry, God as husband and Israel as wife. And then chapter 3 is back to sort of this blended story of Israel, who is Gomer, and God, who is Hosea. And then we get to chapter 4, and what happens in chapter 4 is God brings a charge against his people. So the first three chapters of Hosea, if you were able to read through them at all before you come, uh, sort of focus on the story of Hosea's life and how it's related to God's message of God as husband and Israel as the promiscuous wife, okay? And then chapters 4 to 13 are basically God's charge against the people of Israel. Everything that they've done, all the ways that they have committed adultery against their one true God. So you say, whoa, why so much? Why do we spend so much time focusing on the sins of Israel? Why does Hosea do that? And we'll see it in all the prophets. Why do they spend so much time? Because Israel's spiritual idolatry, worshiping anything other than the thing that they were made to worship, which is God, is so great. And the tendency is, as as human beings, is to downplay our rebellion and false worship. Ah, It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. It's not that bad. And the prophets help us to see how things really are. That's forthtelling. Like, let's just get real. Can we be honest here? That's what the prophets are doing. And it takes them 12 out of the 14 chapters to do that. The magnitude of Israel's spiritual idolatry, their spiritual adultery against their true husband, who is God, is so intense. But we don't have time to read all, all 12 chapters, so I'm just going to highlight. Look, look, so now we're going to start flipping, okay? Let me hear these pages flipping. You hear that? That's a great. Let me get it. That's beautiful. Okay. So chapter 4. Chapter 4, the Word of God is powerful. It brings life to everything it touches. So here we go. 4-1 says this. Here's the charge that God makes. Think of a courtroom. He's charging the people, the children of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy or charge with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murdering and stealing and committing adultery and breaking all bonds and bloodshed followed by bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. You see what he just did there? He basically rattled off the Ten Commandments and they broke all of them. And this is like the basics. And they've broken all of them. And the consequence is the land mourns, literally the land itself, grumbles and mourns because of the sin of the people. And all who dwell in the land, they languish. Our sin has real consequences for not only ourselves, but everybody else that we live in this world with. It's serious. God has a serious charge against us. Jump over here, 12-7. 12-7, jump with me. 12, let me hear it. 12-7, here we go. 12-7 says this. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. See the picture? It says, it's gotten so bad. Businessmen and women are tipping the scales. They've got false scales so that they might rob you of your money. It's just good business practices, okay? It's just good business practices. Everybody's doing them. We all sort of tip the scales a little bit. How else are we going to make money? He loves to oppress. See how bad it's gotten? Flip back. Chapter 5, 3. Chapter 5, sorry. Chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, that's Israel, 
saw his sickness and Judah, southern kingdom, his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria. Assyria is a neighboring country, a powerful, powerful country, and sent to their great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Here's what's going on. Things have gotten so bad that they turn not to God, but they turn to other countries and governments, other kings who have more power and wealth, and they turn to them for help. They turn to those other human beings for help. This is political adultery with the Assyrian king. And as we'll see, it comes back to haunt them. 8-4. We see this again. This political adultery. They made kings, but not through me. This is God speaking. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew. I knew it not. What's going on? Even when they turn to the political leaders within Israel, they pick people based upon human criteria. They don't turn to the prophets and ask the prophets, whom does God have for us to rule his people? They don't. They turn to their own wisdom, their own ideas of what's best, and that's how they pick their kings. Again, they're doing it their own way. Political idolatry, pragmatics instead of supernatural guidance from their God whom loves them. Okay, uh, 11.1, 11.1. What else is going on? 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God's reminding them, when you were in slavery in Egypt, I, I came and I rescued you and I brought you out. And I called you my son. The more they were called by God, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and burning offerings to idols. Flip over to 4.12, and I'm going to explain to you what Baal, worshiping the Baals is. Verse uh, 4.12, 4.12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. You seeing the picture? God's making fun of... You turn to these wooden carved images, and you ask them for guidance. Your walking staff becomes your oracle. When I'm sitting right here, why aren't you talking to me? Now, this is all in reference to a worship of a foreign god, Baal, B-A-A, or B-A-A-L, Baal. And the ba- Baal was a god of fertility, a god of fertility. And so, what we have here is the people of God, the people of Israel, who are, who are, who are told by God, don't worship any other gods besides me, going and worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations, because they thought, well, you know what? Everybody's doing it. Why don't I just do it? Maybe this will help me experience fertility like it does. And actually, uh, one of the interwoven realities of the book of Hosea is that uh, it's believed, and we don't know exactly how this happened, but we believe that there was a really, at, at the temple worship to Baal, there was a really uh, prominent uh, sort of prostitution element, meaning there was uh, women and men there who were temple prostitutes. And in some way, connected to the worship of Baal was uh, sexual acts, sexual immorality, drunkenness, lewd contact. That was a part of Baal worship. And so you see how it's interwoven here into the story of Hosea and his wife Gomer and, and, and all of this that Israel was doing. So uh, one more thing, and this will just show you how bad it's gotten. So we have here false religion. We have people worshiping gods that are not true gods. But it's even worse than that. And this is, I think, sort of the climax. So chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, this is sort of shows how bad things have gotten. And Hosea goes after, speaking the words of God, after the priests, not of Baal, the priests of Yahweh at the temples of the one true God. It says this, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. He's talking to the priests of Israel. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory to shame. And look at this, verse 8. They, that's the priests, feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. 
What, what is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. The priests of God himself are celebrating the sins of the people because the more they sin, the more sacrifices they bring. And guess who gets all that cash? The priests. This is how bad it's gotten, that the people that were supposed to represent God are actually the swindlers. They are greedy for the iniquity of the people. They're encouraging sin so that they might get rich. This happens today. I pray to God that it never happens here. His curse upon the priests and their children is frightening. And so this is just a snapshot. You can read through Hosea and you can see more and more and more of the same stuff. That at every level, the people of God have adultered their relationship with their creator. And so what is the just, fair, and deserved consequence of this adultery? What is due to the whoredom of God's people? Look with me real quick. Verse, or chapter 7, verse 2 says this. Chapter 7, verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. God sees it all, he says. None of it is hidden. 8.14, 8.14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built instead palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. They try to protect themselves. And here's what I'll do. I'll send a fire upon his cities and I shall devour her strongholds. And this is, this is predicting that they will be destroyed and they eventually do become overtaken by the Assyrians, those who they had come to look to for help. And their cities are burned down and their strongholds are defeated and God lets them fall into an exile. 11, 5 through 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. So I'm not going to let them go back to Egypt where I rescued them from slavery. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on turning away from me. Are you bent on turning away from the Lord? Are you going to do the opposite of what he says at all costs. That's how bad it was for the people of Israel. I think, to be honest, this is what we do as well. 13.16 says this. 13.16. Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They, f they shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. This is intense imagery. Because our sin against God is intense. And it's intimately personal to God. I hope you hear that when you read the prophets. Our sin is not just some idea. It's an offense against the personal God. He receives it as such. It's so personal to him, and this is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. So where does our story with God go from here? If that's what we deserve, if that's what an offense, our idolatry, our adultery is to God, where does our story go from here? Well, it goes back to our question, what is love? It's not us doing better because God himself is love. His actions define for us what love is. And in the full detail of our adultery and perfect apprehension of just penalty, guess what God does? He stays faithful to us. Not only that, he redeems us. Not only does he just not leave us, but he actually comes after us to redeem us. So look with me now at Hosea 3, 1 through 2. And we, we jump back into the story 
of Hosea and Gomer, which is the story of us and God. And the Lord said to me, the Lord said to Hosea, go again. How many times did this happen? We don't know. He says, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. Cakes of raisin is just one of the many things that happened at Baal worship. So Hosea goes, and he finds his wife, and look what he does, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley, And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He goes back. Back to the brothel. And he finds her. He finds her. And and so we, we have to try to picture this image of Hosea, a man who has been so faithful to his wife and she seemingly again and again turns to a life of adultery and he goes and he finds her and he says, how much? I'd like to buy my wife back. It's his wife. He says, I'll buy her back. She seems to have been caught up And somebody else claimed her as their own. And he says, I'll buy her back. Just sit in that. I mean, just think of the smells, the images, the sounds that Hosea walks into to go buy back his wife. Somebody say amen if they know that they're Gomer and that Jesus came to rescue you and redeem you and pay the price to buy you back. Somebody say amen. Somebody say amen if they know that you were in slavery like Gomer and that you chose to be in that slavery and that Jesus Christ on the cross paid the debt. He bore the guilt. He bore the price. He bore the pain. By his blood, by his body, by his life, he did that for you, even though you were the one who ran away from him. Somebody say amen. Somebody say amen if you know that the place Jesus found you was not pretty, but that it was filthy and it was smelly, and that your shame surrounded you, that you weren't so put together, that you weren't some perfect altar boy that you weren't polished and pampered and profound, but you were like Gomer and you were filthy and you smelled and your sin surrounded you. Say amen if you know that's you. That's love. It's not an exchange. It's not tit for tat. It's not give and get. Hosea, that's God. He gave everything. We, Gomer, get. We get forgiveness. We get unfailing and eternal love. And we get chance after chance after chance to try to love God back. So how do you respond? How do you respond to this true love? Because the reality is you cannot love God the way He's loved you. He is love. How do you respond to His love? Let me, let me give you two ideas. Here's the first. Chapter 6, look at 6. We have here 6, 1, 2, 3, what seems to be a positive response, and it comes halfway through the book. Here seems to be a positive response. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will rise up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us Press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he comes to us as the showers and as the spring of rains that water the earth. That sounds pretty good. That's a good response, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. 
Look at verse 4. This is what God says in response to those words. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Here's what he's saying. Your love, yes, it's some kind of love, but it's like the morning dew. It's nice for an hour, and then it's gone. Whoa. I I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to know the Lord and press in to know the Lord. Yeah, but you're missing something, Israel. You're missing something, God's children. What are they missing? What didn't happen in those three verses? No acknowledgement of their guilt. No repentance. No remorse. No contrition. They simply say, God is like this. He's, he'll bring the showers. Let us know Him. But there's no recognition. Now, how should we respond? We've got to go all the way to the last chapter, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And here, finally, is the way to love God back for His love, unfailing love towards us. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, underline that, and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bull the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands, to those carved images. And then they say this, in the orphan, or sorry, in you, God. The orphan finds mercy. And God responds, I will heal your apostasy. I will love them, that's Israel, freely, for my anger has turned from them. So what did they get right? Take with you words, words of specific acknowledgement of your sin, words of contrition, words of lament and sorrow for your sin, words of repentance, Words of promise to love, words of action to accompany those vows, and words of understanding that orphans find mercy. They find it. They don't earn it. They don't take it. They don't deserve it. But they find it in the one true God. We are Gomer. All of us. I'm Gomer. You're Gomer. We have all prostituted ourselves to other loves. Lesser loves, we have turned our back to our loving father and husband, the one true God, who has given everything to redeem us and buy us back. And yet, the reality is, we will still struggle and at times find ourselves in that same dark place again. And every time we do, turn back to the Lord. Specifically acknowledge your sin with a truly contrite heart and pray for the power to live a life faithful to match the faithfulness of your God. And here's what will happen, and I'll close with this. Look at uh, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. This is after we have run from God, we have lived into a life of spiritual idolatry and whoredom. God says this, Therefore, 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Basically what he's saying there is, don't call me what you called those other gods, which is master. I want you to call me husband. Intimate, personal relationship. For I, listen to this, this is great. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
I cannot tell you how beautiful that promise is. That as we turn back to the Lord and we fight to be faithful to the Lord alone, that those sins of our past, those other gods that we worshiped, all those adulterous moments will begin to fade from our memory and by the time we stand in glory with God, we will not even remember their name for the overpowering majesty of God, our husband, our savior, our redeemer. That is a beautiful promise, my friends. And the more serious we are about the ways we have failed to love God, the more beautiful that promise is that those names, those other ways of worshiping will fade from our memory and we will remember God only and his great true love for us. Let's pray. Father God, as we start 2019, even though it's just another day, another week, another chance to know you more, there is something about a fresh start that comes with a new year. God, maybe we've been far from you. Maybe we've been living away from home. Maybe we've gone and sought after those places and activities that have given us true pleasure, true life of sorts. But God, we know that the love that those things give is not the love that you give. That your love is unfailing. That your faithfulness knows no ends. That your love does not require of us anything but you freely give it by your grace, God. That we don't deserve it, but it's a gift from you, God. And we want to rest in that love. So maybe in 2019 we're saying, this is the year I'm coming back to my first love, my true love, to my God and my Savior. And I'm accepting anew the things that he has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. God, if there's anybody in this room today that is coming back to you, that knows that they have been adulterous. God, I pray right now that they simply can pray a prayer like this. God, I have sinned against you. I've turned my back on you. But God, I see that you have not turned your back on me. And God, I want to come back into your family into your love that I might know it anew and afresh. God, give me the strength to stay in your love this year, this week, this month, because your love is sweeter than any love that this world has to offer. If you've prayed that prayer, God, if, if your children have prayed that prayer, we ask and we know that you will receive them back that the angels rejoice and they sing when any turns back to the worship and love of the one true God. God, make that turning real and lasting for my friends here today and many in the city who are running from you. It's in Jesus' name and because of his work on the cross and through the resurrection that we can pray and ask these things of you. So we do that right now in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.